1: and welcome to Seriously, the podcast from the New
2: Statesman that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton and I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're going to be talking about Louis Theroux's new documentary, My Scientology Movie, and the Divine Comedy's latest album, Foreverland. Caroline has also watched Game of Thrones for the first time, so
1: she'll be telling us how that went later on in the show. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. It's been a wild and crazy week in the world of Seriously, hasn't it, Caroline?
2: Yeah, it really has. We have quite a big announcement for our listeners. We were hoping it would be bigger than it is because we're doing our first ever live Seriously event, which is going to be a Gilmore Girls quiz on the 22nd of November. We were hoping on this episode to be able to say, hey, everyone, come to our quiz, but it's already sold out. Yeah, we were really surprised. If we'd been more
1: optimistic, we might have said, okay, we'll wait until we're recording the new episode before we put the ticket link live. But we just didn't expect it to sell out and it sold out in well under 24 hours so we were quite
2: surprised. (laughs) Yeah so I feel kind of guilty that this is the first time we're mentioning it on the podcast and we're sort of having to say uh sorry guys it's already full but we are running a waiting list so either if you desperately want to come and don't yet have a ticket go to seriouslypod.com and click on events and you can sign up for it or if you have already bought a ticket but now know you can't come please email us because there are people who are desperate to come. Yeah, exactly. So we're
1: really really excited and the success of the of the events so far encourages us to perhaps do some more.
2: Obviously we'll try and make sure listeners first, but also maybe you should all follow us on Twitter and Facebook to find out yeah. about this stuff further in advance.
1: We've had some absolutely stellar emails this week. We've got one here from Joe who emailed in about
2: uh, Harry Potterverse films, which is obviously an ongoing topic of interest too. seriously. So this is in response to the news that there are going to be five films focusing on the Great Wizarding War, right? So the first one is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them Mm -hmm. that comes out in November, right?
1: Yeah, so it's this film that they sort of advertised as being about Newt Scamander it's sort of becoming slowly more obvious that actually the bigger story that they're going to focus on is this big war that we know happened between Gellert Grindelwald and Albus Dumbledore that was the big final battle of a war started by Grindelwald over many years um where he was basically trying to suppress all muggles essentially and it runs sort of parallel to the actual second world war which has the potential to be quite interesting but yeah. five full movies are going to be devoted
2: to that timeline which is a lot J.K. Rowling hates the word prequel. Yeah, she right? really hates I it. I don't she know hates why it so much. I don't know what she would call it, but basically, these seem to be stories cited earlier in the timeline of the Wizarding World. So, books one to seven and films one to seven A, seven B that we've had focus on the story of Harry Potter. These are the events in the same world as Harry Potter, but like sixty years before, and that we've heard
1: about in the Harry Potter series, yeah, they have been and referenced. sometimes involve the same characters but younger but it's not a prequel.
2: (laughs) So I don't know what she'd call a prequel, but whatever.
1: Yeah. Joe just got in touch to say, if there's going to be five films about the Great Wizarding War, and this is a story JK wished to tell, does this suggest we may be getting the novels around these films as well? doubtful i'd say would she hasn't you? said anything about that has she i doubt i don't think that there's gonna certainly not written by jk rowley and then he's also said if they're about grindelwald does this mean that there's likely to be some actual lgbt content in any of these films i again i'd say no
2: <laughs> I, yeah i i agree with you that i just don't think that's
1: gonna happen it would be nice and there'll probably be lots of um queer baiting mm. ahead of the film's release but i doubt we'll actually see for example dumbledore and grindelwald actually having a relationship of any kind We might get some like, I loved you once Mm. Grindelwald, but no longer sort of dialogue. But I think that's as far as it will go. But um, yeah, I'm really excited for these new films, actually. I'm I'm holding back cynicism because I actually like the look of the trailer. I like the idea of going back to this story. So I'm hoping it'll be good. I won't have super high expectations because, cursed child. Uh, (laughs) But they're 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 pretty middling so far.
2: Yeah, no, I am really excited about the Fantastic Beasts film, actually. And I was, before I knew any of this, actually, just purely based on the fact that it looked like a really nice film. Mm. Like, well-made, interesting, some surprising elements, all from the trailer. Several animals with excellent visual attributes, including yeah. Eddie Redmayne's nice hair. <laughs> yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, I'm even more interested to know that it's kind of, as you said in your piece that you wrote about this, that the animals are a kind of possibly flashy distraction from like a bigger th- story about the nazis of the wizarding world yeah exactly so, so fun yeah, th- stuff we also had i think possibly my favorite email we've ever had to this podcast Whoa. i know strong words for me but tom emails picking up on something from our discussion of the girl on the train last week uh, i said your discussion led me to pick up a copy not of paula hawkins novel but of agatha christie's the 450 from paddington right this
1: is because yes. you you brought up the fact that there's a whole genre of like train commuter-based crime, which begins or has some origins in this Agatha Christie novel.
2: Yes, and I'm so happy with myself because he said, I've not read a Christie novel before but Caroline's description of the murder mystery story piqued my interest. Oh, well done. It's basically all I want from life, to turn people onto Agatha Christie novels who haven't already read them. (laughs) Your Christie propaganda mission finally getting some results. He says it turns out Christie was doing a bit of subtle product placement for you too. She describes a very old man travelling in a first-class carriage reading the new statesman i just thought the circularity of these things was funny that's so cute and he attached to his email a picture of the page and i'm just going to read the, the couple of sentences it says the train was not crowded 4:33 was before the evening rush hour of the first class carriages only one had an occupant a very old gentleman reading the new statesman Ah, oh, that's so great it's also really nice when you work for a magazine that is a kind of cultural signifier going back decades. Mm. So presumably the reason Agatha Christie said that, a very old gentleman reading The New Statesman, was because she knew the reader would instantly be able to picture that person.
1: Yeah, or they probably know an uncle who reads The New Statesman. Exactly. That's really funny. I like that. So the first thing we're going to talk about this week is My Scientology movie, the first feature-length film from British documentary maker Louis Threw. As no current Scientologists agree to appear in his film and refuse to respond to his requests, Louis decides to take matters into his own hands, using a combination of dramatic reconstruction, footage of attempted access, and interviews with ex-members.
0: Hello.
2: Can I just give you a letter? We're doing a documentary about Scientology. Wait, i okay. Scientology. Scientology. A religion created by a sci-fi writer, run by a mysterious leader, David Miscavige. So this is my chance to experience... Scientology. Scientology firsthand. You need to leave. How you doing, Mr. Squirrel? You guys are trespassing. Got anything to say? It's okay, we have a permit. Why
0: are you here? He's right behind us now. We have their attention. Why are they doing this?
1: It's not like any church that you can think of so it's quite a surreal mishmash of different Mm. things this film i don't know i was sort of struggling to go along with it i'd say in the first maybe 20 minutes or so
2: likewise and then i got completely hooked
1: you have these sort of i think they're becoming fairly traditional in their in their own right now these shots of louis you know door knocking and approaching certain buildings in his car and getting turned away and waving a permit and stuff. That's sort of like the documentary maker trying to make his documentary style footage is something, you know, you hear about it in like Searching for Sugar Man and stuff yeah. like this. But that gets boring quite quickly, I think, sometimes. And so what he does instead is this whole um, casting of actors who could play the different big players in the Scientology church who um, can read out things like official documents and stuff or um, reenact prominent TV interviews and that's his way of what he says trying to like get into the heads of these Scientologists.
2: Yeah and I do think it's actually more effective than it sounds because he does it in conjunction with former Scientologists who knew the people these actors are playing personally. Mm -hmm. So both you trust that the actors they're casting are actually a good fit for the role because there's someone with personal knowledge of the person. But also watching the interaction of the former Scientologist with the actor pretending to be the big figure in Scientology is revealing in its
1: own right. So for me, it's funny, I didn't find the reenactment stuff convincing at all in terms of the like getting into the brains of these Mm. Scientologists because obviously these are just actors no matter how well they're, they're sort of playing a part. But I think you're right in that they become useful in all kinds of different ways. And I think it was potentially quite a cynical move and a clever move on Theroux's part to say, oh yeah, we're making this movie, casting these people. Because A, you get all these ex-Scientologists like Marty Rathburn, as you say, reacting to them in ways that are revealing. And all the current Scientologists also get quite angered by his attempts to make this film. So that's when they actually start getting in contact with them. He has no contact with any of these Scientologists at all. And then as soon as he starts trying to make a film about them casting people to play Tom Cruise or the head of Scientology. That's when they start getting all these legal threats. That's when Scientologists start turning up at places that they're filming with their own cameras and start filming them. And suddenly you've
2: got some actual interaction with real Scientologists. So it's quite a clever honey trap in that sense. Yeah, it's a really good provocative move, actually. I'd say that, like you, I didn't find the reenactments themselves particularly interesting or revealing. You're right, it's what they did for the filmmaking process maybe that was more important apart from in one instance where they are reenacting the so-called drills mm-hmm. i found this scene really interesting too. scientologists do which as far as i can tell comes down to sitting like knee to knee with someone in two chairs facing each other and then just trying to freak them out so like yelling at them as loud as you can or like demeaning them or basically training them not to react no matter what mm-hmm. and they also get trained in something called is it tone 40 which is like your loudest most authoritative projected voice and so that in itself is quite interesting seeing how like Louis reacts to that and mm-hmm. the other actors but then later on when they're having interactions with current Scientologists I'm particularly thinking of that woman called Catherine who's one of the people who tries to like chase them off from filming outside a big Scientology venue.
1: Yeah, and she was married to um, a Scientologist who like left the church and wrote a tell-all memoir about it. And who it. does appear
2: in the film. Mm-hmm. But having seen the reconstruction of them doing the drills, you could see her doing tone forty exactly. And. The way she was just completely... Because at one point, Louis starts kind of, not exactly shouting at her, but like quite aggressively saying, well, what do you want us to do, Catherine? Why, why do you think we're here? Why won't you be in the film? And she's just completely impervious. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, right, so yeah, decades of doing those drills will do that for you. Yeah, and, and- you
1: also see what they've learned in the in the ball baiting as they call it Mm. drill which is when you try and provoke someone not just what they've learned in not being provoked but what they've learned in trying to provoke someone because all of these ex-scientologists come and follow marty rathburn wherever he goes and they say things like why are you doing this why are you being a squirrel they call it and what you know is it because is it because you're a loser is it because you you never you never really succeeded in the church and making veiled comments about his children and stuff and it becomes really, really nasty and you see all the tactics they've learned Mm. for trying to get to people really coming to the fore as well. So I agree with you completely that out of all the reenactment bits, those scenes where you see what the training of Scientologists actually looks like is really useful.
2: Another thing that I found quite revealing In the reenactment, in a slightly more meta sense, is that there's that relatively short interview with the young man who joined Scientology when he first moved to L.A. to become an actor. Mm -hmm. And he describes how, you know, he opened his first issue of like Stage Magazine to look at the audition listings source a thing about want to break into the business, come to the Church of Scientology and got involved that way. And he describes how attractive the church is to like a young actor, basically, how young actors just so perfectly fit the psychological profile of someone who would want to be involved in Scientology. And then you see them casting all of these young actors Mm. to play famous Scientologists. And there's that bit where Matty Rathbone walks out of the reenactment because he's not comfortable with them pretending to applaud the portrait of L. Ron Hubbard because mm-hmm. he kind of he says something like, You know, I think you've kind of crossed a line now between pretending to do the thing and just doing the thing. Mm-hmm. And that I think is interesting the fact that Scientology is so inextricably bound up with Hollywood and the idea of celebrity, um, and the fact that Louis was like using that. It's It's really interesting that
1: moment because what he says when he leaves is he's like, you know, I've left one cult and here we are starting a new cult, the cult of Louis Theroux. And then you stand because Louis Theroux has been Telling everyone, he's been like the director of explaining when they should applaud, when they shouldn't, yeah. and so they're all applauding this this fake portrait of, that's not really there of Elrond Hubbard and Louis Thru's just sort of stood there receiving their applause, mm. and it it's a really funny shot. And you know, it's obviously done in a very tongue in cheek way. But as someone who like really does love Louis Thru and is part of all these communities that really idolise him, it's just a really like bizarre and interesting moment in the documentary.
2: Mm, yeah, and it's also just such a an interesting film as a whole because it is like a meta-commentary on the idea of not being able to make a film. Mm-hmm.
1: But Prime always stuff. with a sort of smile. And it's very playful, this film, which yeah. I think is nice. It's not taking itself too seriously. It's not like we tried so hard to get into Scientology mm. and yet they refused. It was, It's very, it's funny. Mm. So there's, there's a whole farcical argument about whether or not the road that they want to film on is a public road or road that belongs to the Church of Scientology because they own the land. Mm. So there's all this constant, like, it's a public road, no it's not it's not a public road the police come the police are like oh we're not sure we think it's actually a private road I think we think they can do what they want and then at the end of the film after it's gone to credits they've got all these sort of like you know Marty Rathburn now does this that you sort of get at the end yeah. of these documentaries and then it just comes up with it was a public road <laughs> <laughs> That is <laughs> really maybe
2: Now we're going to talk about Foreverland, which is the 11th studio album by the Northern Irish alt-pop band The Divine Comedy. You may know them from such 90s singles as National Express and Generation Sex. The songs on this latest album are written and largely performed by Neil Hannon, who has been the group's only constant member over their three decades of work. It's also won them their highest ever UK album chart position, peaking at number seven.
1: Loved that Troy McClure style intro there. Like, you really remember the Divine (laughs) Comedy from such
2: 90s singles as... Well, this raises an interesting point, right? Because I am a massive fan of the Divine Comedy. They are my music love beyond everything else. Oh, And I have no sense of how much anyone else knows about this.
1: Well, I remember when we went to the David Bowie proms Mm. in reinterpretation night and you were like, oh my god, Neil Hannon from the Divine Comedy is going to be and I was like "Uh, uh, yeah that guy and Stephanie and you were both like what like how can you not know who this is Stephanie is a colleague of ours who works in the office I didn't really know who the fuck they were and so this has been my year of introduction to Neil Hannon and the Divine Comedy
2: as I say I have literally no sense of how well known they are I mean I know they're well enough known for you know the band to still exist and Mm -hmm. for them to put out albums every few years and for every time there's an album Neil Hannon as an interview in The Guardian, you know, that kind of thing. But this is the first time their album seems to have had any particular chart impact. And it's also the first time in a long time that they've done such an extensive UK tour. Like normally they play a couple of dates in London and Manchester and maybe Dublin and Belfast and that's it. Mm -hmm. Whereas they're touring for like a year and they're playing Cambridge and Liverpool and Gateshead and lots and lots of small venues in small towns. And they're all selling out. That's amazing. So I think finally Neil Hannon and Divine Comedy have kind of transitioned into the social media age. They've realised they've got this small but dedicated fan base and they're finally like capitalizing on that and going to where those people are who would
1: you align them alongside like for example like in the 90s would you put them alongside like Pulp?
2: yeah Pulp Yeah. Neil Hannon said he's a massive fan of Jarvis Cocker
1: okay because I feel like in the same way that there are men out there who if Jarvis Cocker for example writes some sort of like wanky think piece will just religiously read it Mm. and I feel like Neil Hannon is a similar sort of figure where if he like says something publicly a lot of people would be like ah well Neil Hannon's on this are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the same way, not not to the same extent of, as Morrissey, that's a bad comparison because obviously Morrissey
2: is so big and a bit earlier, but in that kind of vein. I mean, I'm slightly too young to be in this group, but there are definitely people maybe five, seven years older than me who grew up with the Divine Comedy being their like principal musical interest. And they reveled in the fact that it was quite niche, even in the nineties. Mm. And that was very much their identity. Mm. Neil Hannon himself definitely identifies... Jarvis Cocker as his like main contemporary influence he wrote a piece for the New Statesman a few weeks ago about song lyrics and in it he kind of says please do another album Jarvis you know he he identifies himself as a fan of Jarvis Cocker that's great I think the the band's biggest commercial hits were sort of like 96 through to 2000 stuff like National Express which got used on the National Express advert (laughs) that was his kind of Britpop moment even though he wasn't really Britpop in the senses of Pulp and Oasis and Blur
1: I think the lyrical playfulness its that that piece he wrote for us about lyrics is, I think, quite revealing about the band as a whole, Mm. because I think that definitely is what he, he shares with Pulp. And I like how on this latest album, so these are sort of songs that reference Catherine the Great and Napoleon, and they're still very silly. There's like a sort of tweeness
2: to them, but because it's all a bit tongue in cheek, it's funny and it doesn't feel too
1: pretentious. or.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I really like the song Catherine the Great, actually, which starts the opening lyrics of it are, let's talk of Catherine the Great, let's talk of love and the power of the state. Yeah,
1: but it's done in this very jovial sort of style. Yeah. I have to say, this whole album, and Caroline also very kindly made me a sort of precy of other Divine Comedy songs via a Spotify playlist, they reminded me so much of this David Bowie song called Kooks. Do you know that one? No, I didn't it's know on that one. Hunky Dory, I want to say. Will you
0: stay in a lover's story? You stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll grow So take a chance With a couple of cooks Hung up on romancing
1: I mean, I don't know if it's because it was already in my mind that Neil Hannon sounds quite a lot like David Bowie when he sings because we had seen him sing Bowie songs at that proms event. But lyrically and in that sort of like, we're a little strange, but we're happy, kind of yeah. like bouncy melody, tinkly stuff in the background. It really reminded me of that song and a couple of songs on that album, which is the album that has like changes mm. and stuff like that on. And I really enjoyed it. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, actually, because I was sort of ready to be like, hmm. These guys were going to be feel a little bit irrelevant and probably just not be my sort of very mainstream poppy bag but they were really fun I think I would actually just like listen to that in the background of my work, like, quite regularly. Did you have any other ones that you liked, apart from Catherine the Great? I liked the first track, which is Napoleon something. Napoleon Complex. I liked the duet he d- does with his wife. Oh, funny, which, peculiar. Which is the one that really reminded me of Coops, yeah. which is David Bowie's song about being, like, in a relationship and with a, his first child and stuff. I read a great uh, Drowned in Sound review. We uh, we often sort of mention Drowned mm. in Sound reviews because they are very good, where they said that that was sort of towing the line between, like, a Noel Coward-style song or a Burt Backer style song and like a she and him style horribly twee song yeah. and it just manages to to stay on the right side of it
2: which i think is true so i went to the divine comedies gig in liverpool last week at the saint george's hall and uh he performed that song with the support act who's lisa o'neill who's an irish singer-songwriter and because i previously actually thought it was too twee, mm-hmm. that part of that this album i didn't like But their performance of it changed my mind, actually, because she's got a really quite edgy voice. And they did it really simply, just like sitting on stools facing each other. They didn't do any kind of like mugging to the audience or anything like that. They just sang <laughs> it really simply. I was like, oh, this is actually a really
1: sweet little song. That's nice. So what else did the live performance make you think compared to the Light Studio album?
2: A couple of things. One that I'm very, very reassured to find that Neil Hannon has been listening somehow to me and my friend Oscar, who've been saying this for years, and has finally realised that he is the front man of a band. Mm-hmm. He is not also a musician in that band. Mm-hmm he's got a really good set of musicians with him and he stands at the front and he sings because that is what he's really good at Mm -hmm. i've been to many many divine comedy gigs in the past where neil has also decided to try and play the piano or sometimes (laughs) the mouth organ or the guitar it's like neil you're okay at this obviously good enough to like write your songs but you cannot sing properly and do that at the same time (laughs) please stop it and he's finally realized and it's fantastic i think also he must have taken quite a lot of singing lessons for that david bowie song that he did at the Because that was really great, really vocally challenging, and he's sounding fantastic, really good. What's interesting is because often when you go and see a band live, the instrumentation is different as it is from the album because, you know, they can't have a string orchestra or Mm -hmm. whatever. But largely, it stands up pretty much the same. Like, he's got someone playing the accordion and he's got someone playing synth with all the different sounds. So actually, it does sound quite similar. You're such a fan that you're
1: going again this week. Yes, I am. To see them again with a bunch of friends, which I think is adorable.
2: Yeah, so I'm going with a group of my friends from school. Who have presumably been to that particular venue with you in the past. A lot also my mum and my friend Oscar's parents are coming too oh that's so sweet because <laughs> that's how entrenched the divine comedy is in our lives that we take our parents to these things too I'm so pleased for you I hope it's as good as the last one and I hope you have a fantastic time yeah and I, I hope people check out this album who maybe haven't heard of them before I might actually publish the link to my Spotify playlist as well if anyone a very wants good to decision. get into the divine comedy yeah we
1: should put that in the show notes for sure Can't get her out of my mind, and when I sleep I visualize her. I saw her
2: in the pub. I met her later at the night a mutual friend.
1: So last week I recommended that Caroline watch an episode of <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sorry, that was so embarrassing, but <laughs> <laughs> that
2: was great, I loved it.
1: So the episode that I recommended after many discussions with my boyfriend was Two Swords, which is the first episode of season four of Game of Thrones. It comes after two very, very high-profile controversial episodes because there's a lot of death in them. As you can tell, guys, this is going to be a spoilerific discussion, so if you're behind on Game of Thrones, then, you know, disappear. It was the first episode of the fourth season. It broke ratings records for that season. I think it was when it first tipped over 6 million viewers for an episode. And it also got really good critical reviews, most notably for the final scenes of the episode involving Arya Stark which was why I chose
2: this one for you, because you are an Arya Stark fan, right? I am. So it's not entirely true to say that I haven't seen Game of Thrones before in the manner of this segment. I've seen about half of the first episode, or the very first episode of the first series, which I watched after finishing all of the novels. Thought it was rubbish, never watched it again. hmm until watching this episode on your recommendation which both confirmed a lot of things that I'd like heard in the culture chat about Game of Thrones and also surprised me in some ways. The things it confirmed for me is that Game of Thrones is kind of objectifying of women. Yeah were there particular moments that you were like ew Uh, guys. The bit where someone's being shown a selection of prostitutes. They all just sort of stood there. Yeah and someone just like takes her clothes off and she has to stand there naked while some men latch at her mm-hmm. that that's a classic That is kind of what i had been led to expect from game of thrones mm-hmm. from its reviews and general chat about it something also that i'd wondered how they were going to deal with in the tv show that is a problem in the books is all the different storylines running concurrently Mm. so have you read the books i can't remember not at all no so the way it does it in the books is each chapter is written third person from the perspective of a different character and he roughly moves you around the world in a sort of cinematic sense so you'll get like someone in king's landing then someone in the north then someone in dawn and he just about manages to take you back to the same storyline often enough that you don't forget what's going on mm mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, like, how would they recreate that in the TV series? And the answer is basically in exactly the same way. Well, it reminds me structurally of
1: Downton Abbey Mm. in that it's like maybe 10 plots, 10 minutes each over an hour. And obviously there's a lot less overlap because in Downton Abbey, all the characters are in one house and they're all interacting. But this, it's a lot more like one person's in this part of the country and the other one's all across the sea and blah, blah, blah. But... Yeah that's the my sort of
2: closest tv analogy i guess. Yeah it's like a really big multi-strand mm-hmm. drama really yeah. So i was i was interested to see how they did that. I was also interested to see how little like of the landscape was in this episode. Yeah. Maybe it just so happens that it's like no one was travelling in this one. Are there lots of descriptions of mm. fields and shit. In I, I, I feel like in the books, people are doing nothing but like being on horseback between different places all the time.
1: Mm, there is a lot of that in the show too, but there's not so many like lingering shots of that. Like, mm. I mean, they literally show a shot of the wall, like a big, like you're raising your neck, you're raising your neck, you're looking up. Oh, it's still there. Hasn't disappeared <laughs> into the horizon yet. You know, that kind of shot of the wall all the time. But yeah, I'm not sure they do loads of that. So what were the things that surprised you? It
2: surprised me how detailed it was because mm-hmm. i think i'm pretty accustomed to when i'm watching an adaptation of something i've read that they have to for the sake of screen time cut stuff out cut people out merge characters for it to make sense whereas i guess i hadn't really appreciated how big a production game of thrones is mm. so they've kept all the storylines in they've kept all the characters in that's great and they just made it massive yeah so that was surprising to me yeah i thought it would have been simplified mm. so did you like it or no I neither liked it nor disliked it. I actually felt quite similar to how I feel about the books, which is that my interest in it is entirely Mm plot-driven. I want to know what happens, and then I don't want to think about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of Arya's stabby scene? So that was the only part that made me go, ooh, I actually want to see more of her. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like that was the first time in the episode where I was like, ah, there is some deeper art to this. Because, you know, we had the whole scene at the beginning where Tywin Lannister was recasting the famous uh, Stark sword into two different swords. Mm -hmm. And then, and you're like, ah, so that's the two swords of the title. And then you're like, oh no, it's not. There's another. There's another sword her sword needle that she gets back from the person who stole it and then she uses to do some badass fighting with.
1: Yeah, and it's a reference to the fact that he stole that sword from her and he killed a little kid, basically, Mm. in the same manner by stabbing him in the middle of the neck like that and watching all the blood bubble out of his throat. So it's another sort of mirroring thing where she's taking her revenge by doing the same thing with the same sword.
2: I did have to do quite a lot of reading on the Game of Thrones wiki. Mm -hmm. Shout out to the fans who maintain the Game of Thrones wiki. It's really good. Good work. Because of coming in like four seasons in, not having seen stuff and also not having read the books for a few years. There was a really interesting comment in the notes section for this episode where it says that the two swords of the title refers to you know the one that Tywin offers Jamie the recast uh, Valyrian steel Valyrian steel sword but also to uh, Arya's needle. And also highlights the fact that we thought that in the recasting of the Valyrian steel sword, like that's the end of the Starks. Their sword's been melted down, their Mm -hmm. mind is gone. And then right at the end, the second sword in Arya's hand reminds us that there is still Starks out there. They still got a chance. Yeah. That is some good narrative art.
1: Really good. And actually I'm only, I'm currently watching series five. I'm at the sort of getting to the end of series five and Valyrian steel swords and Starks, Continue to be a running theme towards the end of season five. There's a big sword key scene. I'm glad that you didn't hate it perhaps as much as series one.
2: I found it quite pacey. I think that was my problem with episode one, series one. Totally agree. It was just a lot of men standing in the snow wearing skins. Yeah, dull. Agree. It picks up. It it takes a
1: long time to get going. This series. I don't know why people like it so much because I think yeah, it's very slow.
2: So I am glad to have like engaged with what is clearly a cultural behemoth of our time, Mm -hmm. but I am not sure that I am going to wade through the hundreds of episodes there must be by now. Yeah, I will read the books if and when they eventually come out. Appear, but um, I think the ship has sailed for me on becoming a Game of Thrones TV fan. Fair enough. So, what are you going to recommend me for next week? I am going to recommend you something that is, I think, pretty much the opposite of Game of Thrones. It's as... Okay, great. ...televisually as far (laughs) you can get from the world of... uh, Westeros? Westeros, yes. That's the name of it. Well, I think opposite of Game of Thrones is actually normally a good way to define my taste in stuff, so I'm excited. (laughs) So it is Crazy Stupid Love, which is a 2011 rom-com film, and it stars Julianne Moore, Steve Carell... Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. So this came up when we were chatting yes. about... I
1: can't remember. About La La Land. Oh when yeah, were, was it. Last
2: week when you were saying you'd seen that at the London Film Festival. Because this is the film that is the origination of that clip of Emma Stone looking at Ryan Gosling's chest and going, seriously though? Before they do the dirty dancing lift. I exactly. Hear. So yeah, this is a, a rom-com from 2011 in which... Gosling and Stone are actually, like, the B couple. The A couple is Carell and Moore. Mm -hmm. And they are married and breaking up. And it's basically about (laughs) Steve Carell's, like... I heard someone, a friend of mine once described it to me as it's, like, Steve Carell's version of, like, the sisterhood of the travelling pants. Because his his, (laughs) wife... I think I would watch the shit out of. Yeah, his wife has cheated on him. She wants a divorce. And they were high school sweethearts or something, so he has to, like, get back out there and start dating again. And he ends up in this bar. Ryan Gosling, who's, like, this handsome, trendy player, takes pity on him and is like, mate, I'm going to take you shopping. I'm going to, like, teach you how to talk to women again. You can just
1: tell that in in Another Life, Ryan Reynolds would have been cast in this role, don't you reckon?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The Ryans. Yeah. Yeah, so it's basically principally about Steve Carell's, like... Adventures of His Penis. Love it. With a subplot of Ryan Gosling. Adventures with His Penis. Yeah, well, uh, it has some of that classic trope that we talked a bit about with The Sure Thing last week, where he first gets interested in Emma Stone because she's the only woman who's like, no thanks, Mm -hmm. I I don't wish to have sex with you. Mm -hmm. bye-bye. And then, of course, he's like, I must have her. Mm-hmm. and, it all and goes then on he proves there. her wrong yeah Roll. but yeah I can't wait I'm excited I love a rom-com I think this is a Valentine's Day release I think which so, sounds yeah. like it's probably right it's, up my street well, I think it's also recently just been added to UK Netflix because oh, I hadn't thought about this one for ages I first watched it on a plane or something and I just randomly saw loads of people tweeting about it and that's why because it's just appeared on Netflix well I will get my Netflix app open ASAP <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture
2: podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including in iTunes, where you could also leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people find the show. Our first ever live event, the
1: Seriously Gilmore Girls quiz, is now sold out, sad face, but you can put your name on the waiting list by going to seriouslypod.com and clicking on events. Don't worry if you can't come though, there will be a special episode of the podcast devoted to all things Stars Hollow as well.
2: Also on that website, you'll find all our back episodes, including our specials on Harry Potter, Love Actually and Friends. We're also available
1: many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them.
2: We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or just hearing your thoughts on what we've discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com.
1: And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell all your friends and family about
0: the podcast.